Okay, as Adam mentioned, we're in the book of Leviticus, and first seven chapters discussed rules and regulations regarding different uh, different sacrifices. And then in the last lesson, lesson eight was about ordaining Aaron and the priests. So you think, well, what does that have to do with us? Well, actually, it has a lot to do with us. Uh, Aaron is the high priest, which foreshadows Christ. And then the priests that are serving under him foreshadows us. So as we, as we uh, talked about the last time, the things, the things about the priests, we talk about four things in the ordination of the priests and the ministry of the priests. And actually, Allison got either a call or a text from somebody who was here last time saying, now, I remember I remember there were four things, but what was number three? And number the four things, the four marks of the priests, went through Leviticus 8 when they're being ordained, is they're washed, number one, they're washed, they're clothed with special clothing, they're anointed, and then they're put into service and in offering all kinds of prayers and sacrifices. So those are the four marks of a priest. And guess what? Peter says that we are members of a royal priesthood. That that was foreshadowing what we are. That Christ is the high priest. He is the anointed one. That's what the Christ means. And we all, have, we all are anointed ones as well. So those four things. And if you forget those four things... I'm going to teach you a little shortcut so that you can quickly pick it up again. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 40, the last chapter in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 40, in the second half of Exodus, they explain how to set up the tabernacle, how to make all the things that go into the tabernacle. In Exodus chapter 40, they, they put all the pieces together, they assemble it, and they ordain the priests, and then the Lord comes down, fills the temple, and boom, they're off. They're, they've started. So, so Exodus 40 is the con- construction and the consecration of the temple. Now, what we're looking at in Leviticus is more of an expansion on what's in Exodus 40. So, I want to start off reading in Exodus 40, verses 1 and 2. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, the new moon, you shall set up the tabernacle of testimony. So this is what they're doing. So the, the beginning of the year, first day of the first month, second year, they're, they're assembling the tabernacle, all this, the instructions that they were given. And then, in verse starting in verse 10, it says, Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the doors of the testimony, tabernacle of testimony, and wash them in water, You shall put the holy garments on Aaron and anoint and consecrate him that he may minister to me as priest. You shall also bring his sons and put garments on them. You shall anoint them as you anointed their father so they may minister to me as priests. For their anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations. Thus Moses did according to all the Lord commanded him to do so. He did. So it's very clear. This is what was done for Aaron the high priest, and this is done, was done for all the priests. And it mentions there the, the four things. They are, they are washed, they are clothed, they are anointed, just like Aaron was the high priest, and then they are put into the ministry of service. So that's the idea, is that the high priest is Jesus, and, and, and the priests are following along in the same pattern. So this has been really helpful to me, what we've been studying over the last couple of weeks, because it helps me to understand, okay, now I get, I get the picture. When Peter says we're members of a royal priesthood, that means we're going to be doing the same thing that the priests were doing in the beginning. So it says the first thing is that they were washed, and we talked about how, in, in the scriptures it talks about how we are washed in, in baptism, that they were clothed. It says that we're clothed with Christ and we need to be clothed with humility, the special clothing that we put on. And the third thing is that we're anointed. We've been anointed with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the anointed one, but we as Christians, we are anointed ones as well. We are the anointed ones of God. That's what it means to be a Christian. We're anointed of God just as Jesus himself is the anointed one. And then the fourth part, which is what we are to be engaged in now as the priests, is we are to be offering sacrifices. And Paul talks about that in Romans 12.1, where he says, offer your bodies, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. So instead of offering animal sacrifices, the sacrifices that we offer are 
ourselves. We are living sacrifices. And Paul, in the rest in Romans 12, 13, 14, 15, he explains all the things, all the different ways that we offer sacrifices to glorify God in denying the flesh, in serving others, in submitting to the various authorities like the government, all the different things that we do is offering our bodies as living sacrifices and offering prayers all the time. So we are in a priesthood which is open to people of all nations, all ages, and men and women. This this priesthood is open to, to all. We are members of a royal priesthood, and if we look at the priests, we can learn things about ourselves. So these are all encouraging things we learn about the priest. Today we're going to learn some not so encouraging things. There are some warnings for the priests also that we will we will learn from. So it's just a little little introduction here. Now let's pick up also in Exodus 40. Let's continue at the end of Exodus 40. Because this ties in with what we're going to study today. Exodus chapter 40, starting in verse 28. So after everything is set up, then it says, Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of testimony. The tabernacle was filled with the Lord's glory. But Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of testimony because the cloud overshadowed it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud ascended from the tabernacle, the children of Israel prepared to depart with their belongings. But if the cloud did not descend, they did not prepare to depart until the cloud ascended. For before all Israel, throughout all their journey, the cloud was above the tabernacle by day, and the fire was over it by night. So we see here the cloud of glory is overshadowing the tabernacle after it's all set up. And the tabernacle is filled with the glory of the Lord. Now let's pick it up in Leviticus chapter 9, where it goes into more detail about these things. So you can put the pieces together. Actually, I'm going to start here with the end of chapter 8. And Leviticus, we'll start Leviticus 8 and verse 33. So this is the instructions from Moses it says, You shall not go outside the door of the tabernacle of testimony for seven days until the day of your consecration are fulfilled. For seven days he shall consecrate you. As the Lord did on this day he commanded uh, to do, to make atonement for you. Therefore you shall stay at the door of the tabernacle of testimony day and night for seven days and keep the charge of the Lord that you may not die. For the Lord God so commanded me. So Aaron and his sons did all the words the Lord commanded Moses. So this is the they're 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 ordained, they're consecrated. This is a seven day process, and they can't leave the temple for seven days. Right? So let's let's pick it up from there. In chapter nine and verse one. Now it came to pass on the eighth day that Moses called Aaron and his sons and Israel's council of elders. Moses said to Aaron, Take for yourself a young calf from the oxen as a sin offering, and a ram as a whole burnt offering without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And to the council of elders you shall speak, saying, Take one kid of the goats as a sin offering, and a young calf and a lamb, both of the first year without blemish, as a whole burnt offering, also a young bull and a ram as a peace offering before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil, for to they the Lord will appear to you. So they brought what Moses commanded before the tabernacle of testimony, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. Then Moses spoke this word, This is the thing the Lord has commanded you to do, and the glory of the Lord will appear among you. Moses then said to Aaron, Go to the altar, offer your sin offering and your whole burnt offering, and make atonement for yourself and for your house. Also offer the gifts of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord commanded Moses. Um, So, after seven days of of ordination where uh, Aaron and his four sons are set apart, and they're at the temple, they're told to offer sacrifices to prepare for what's going to happen. 
And they are told on the eighth day, they said, they're told, today the Lord will appear to you. Think about that uh, for a moment. The whole idea that the Lord is going to appear on the eighth day. Uh, do you think that might be pointing to something in the future also? The Lord appearing on the eighth day. I see a few smiles here. Well, the eighth day among the Christians, of course, the set that you know the, the, the world was created in the seventh days. On the seventh day, the Lord rested, and so the seventh day was the Sabbath. That was Saturday, and so the 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 Christians saw in this discussion about the week the pattern of Jesus's life that he would rest on the seventh day, and on the eighth day, the day after the seventh day, he would be raised up. So there are a number of, a number of references to this among the early Christian writers talking about the significance of the eighth day. The eighth day was, the week starts again on Sunday, and it's, it's basically the day of the resurrection. So he says, the Lord will appear to you on the eighth day. So just file that one away. I'll give you some examples of early Christians who talk about the significance of the eighth day. Now think about, is there any significance of the number eight in the Bible that you can think of? Any, are there any famous eights in the Bible? I mean, one of the ones I think of is circumcision takes place on the eighth day. All right? Another one I can think of is Peter talks about this in 2 Peter chapter 1, that a few people were saved in Noah's ark. How many? A few people, only eight, were saved through the water. So salvation is tied in with the number eight here. So this is from Justin Martyr's Dialogue with Trifos. This is a dialogue that, that Justin Martyr is having with a Jew, and uh, writing in the middle of the uh, second century, maybe in the 160s or so. It's, it's, it's in um, a Dialogue with Trifo, a Jew, chapter 41, in Anicene Fathers, volume 1, page 215. And we post the notes and put all the references in there also. So this is from Justin Martyr, who was a Samaritan who converted to the Christian faith. He said, The command of circumcision, again, bidding them to always circumcise the children on the eighth day, was a type or, or a foreshadowing, a pattern of the true circumcision by which we are circumcised from deceit and iniquity through him who rose from the dead on the first day after the Sabbath, namely through our Lord Jesus Christ. For the first day after the Sabbath, remaining the first of all days, is called, however, the eighth day, according to the number of the days in the cycle, and yet remains the first. So he's saying Jesus rose on the eighth day after the day of rest, after the Sabbath. Okay. Uh, another one from uh, uh, Dialogue with Trifo with Jew, a little further on in, in chapter... Uh, 138, he says, For righteous Noah, along with the other mortals at the deluge, that's the flood, that is with his own wife, his three sons and their wives, being eight in number, were a symbol of the eighth day, wherein Christ appeared when he rose from the dead forever the first in power. So this is the idea that Jesus arose on the eighth day, and this is the line, The Lord will appear to you on the eighth day in Leviticus. So all the people are gathered together. So they're, they're told, the elders are told to bring forward the, the animals to be sacrificed on behalf of the people. And then the whole congregation is gathered together in front of the tabernacle to witness what is about to happen because it says the Lord's going to appear to you. And let's continue in Leviticus chapter 9. You read along with me in starting in verse 8. Uh, actually, I'll, I'll summarize Leviticus 9, 8 to 21. There's a number of different sacrifices that are offered here. You can read these on your own, and we'll pick it up in verse 22. It says, Then Aaron lifted his hand toward the people, blessed them, and came down from offering the sin offering, the whole burnt offerings, and the peace offering. After this, Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of testimony and came out and blessed all the people. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from the Lord and consumed the things on the altar, both the whole burnt offerings and the fat 
When all the people saw this, they were amazed and fell on their faces. So, this is the glory of the Lord appears to the people. This is the cloud, a pillar of cloud and fire that comes down into the temple. And then out from the presence of the Lord, fire comes. So I'm imagining fire coming out from the most holy place out to where the altar is in the courtyard and burning up all the animal sacrifices that are on that. And the people were gathered around. They were told they would see the glory of the Lord and they witnessed the spectacular event with fire coming from out of the temple of God and consuming the sacrifices. And the people are floored. They're stunned. And it says they fall on their faces after seeing this, after seeing the glory of the Lord. They are amazed. And this is actually rather similar to what happens. The tabernacle is a a portable tent-like structure that that would move around in the wilderness as the people were in the wilderness for 40 years. And under the reign of Solomon, that is converted into, they build a permanent structure, the temple. And this is what happens here is very similar at at the uh, consecration of the tabernacle to the same thing with the temple. Let's turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Let's see what I mean. Very similar. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, this is after Solomon gives a Wonderful prayer of dedication for the temple that he just built. In 2 Chronicles 7, 1, it says, When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord at that time because the glory of the Lord had filled the house. When all the sons of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord in the house, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement, worshipped and praised the Lord, saying, He is good, His mercy endures forever. So this is is a confirmation that God, just as He was with the people in the tabernacle 400 years later, the same thing happens with the temple. So... uh, A few questions. Imagine you're one of the people who's standing around the, the, the tabernacle and you've seen Aaron and his sons disappear in there for seven days with Moses and not come out. And then on the eighth day, there's a the big assembly to watch what's going to happen. It says you'll see the glory of the Lord and you just witnessed the fire of the Lord coming out and consuming these sacrifices and you fell on your face, what would you be thinking? What kind of impact would that have on you? Um, And I'm thinking, if I was there, the impact it would have on me, I'd be scared to death. I'd be be terrified. I'd be the fear of the Lord. That's the first thing I think of is, if I saw the fire coming out from the temple and consuming, consuming the sacrifices, I would be, I'd be terrified. I'd be frightened. And it's kind of like when the Lord comes down at Mount Sinai and the whole mountain shakes and, there, and there's fire and the people, people are just saying, look, Moses, whatever he says, you tell us, Exodus 19.20, says, you, you don't, we don't want to hear the voice of the Lord anymore. You just tell us whatever he says and we'll do it, anything. We don't care. We give up. We, we throw, we're throwing up the white flag. We surrender. We are terrified of God. So... Uh, that would be, if I was standing there and I saw that happen, I would be thinking, whatever this God says, I want to do what he says. I don't want to get on the wrong side of this God. I don't want to take God casually. And whatever Moses and Aaron say, whatever the priests tell us to do, I'm going to take it very seriously. If they're saying that this is from the Lord. Uh, and the, so I'd be afraid of God. The other thing I'd be thinking was, I would not be terribly afraid of people, okay? I wouldn't be afraid of other kings. I wouldn't be afraid of other armies. I'm thinking, okay, this is our God who is parked in the pillar of cloud and fire over the tabernacle, which is the center of our community. And this is our God. And anybody who messes with us or our God, any other gods that are out there, any other kings that are out there, I wouldn't be terribly worried about them. Okay? 
So this would this would produce, on the one hand, a real fear of God. On the other hand, a real confidence that if we're walking with God, nobody's going to be able to mess with us. So that would be what I would be thinking. But just imagine, what would you be thinking if you ex- if you experienced that yourself? Uh, okay, now things change pretty pretty quickly here in the next chapter. Let's turn to Leviticus chapter ten. And this is going to raise a lot of questions. And we'll, we'll, we'll try to wrestle with them together here. Leviticus chapter 10. This is a very disturbing story. I'm going to read the first 11 verses. Now Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, each took his censer and put fire in it and put incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me I shall be sanctified, and before all the congregation I shall be glorified. So Aaron was greatly distressed. Moses then called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, Aaron's uncle, and said to them, Come near, carry your brethren from the presence of the sanctuary outside the camp. So they came near and carried them by their tunics outside the camp, as Moses said. Then Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not uncover your heads, nor take off your garments, lest you die. And wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brethren, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning the Lord kindled. You shall not go out from the door of the tabernacle of testimony, lest you die. For the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. So they did according to the words, Moses' words. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine and strong drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle of testimony, or when you approach the altar, lest you die. It shall be an ordinance forever throughout your generations that you may distinguish between holy and unholy and between unclean and clean and that you may teach the children of Israel all the ordinances which the Lord spoke to them by the hand of Moses. So, uh, So Aaron has four sons. These Nadab and Abihu are the two oldest of his four sons. All four sons are ordained priests. So right after the ordination of the four sons, two of them are struck dead. So this is there goes half of his family right there. And these are sons. Numbers, in Numbers chapter three, it says there that these are his oldest two sons. And that they were childless. They, they had, they're leaving no descendants behind, so their line is completely wiped out. Now, think about this, what we just said earlier. Aaron, the high priest, is representing Jesus. The priests are representing us. So, what are we supposed to learn from this story right here? Okay, we learn that the priests are washed, clothed, anointed, and involved in service of sacrifices and prayers. But then two of them get struck dead. So, well, obviously there's something for us to learn about, about this, and I want to I probe that a little bit further. So, the first question that I would have is, what did they do that was so wrong? Okay, that whatever they did was so bad that they got incinerated immediately by God. What did they do that was so bad? And what it says, I looked at several different translations to try to get some insight into this. And, and it says, in one, it says that they offered strange fire, they offered alien fire, they offered unauthorized fire, which tells me about as much as I knew before, which isn't a whole lot. So, okay, what did they do? So, but basically, they, I grew up in, in, in the Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Churches, you know, they have incense at certain times of the year. And I always would, would enjoy that because they would have these little little censers, and they put a, maybe a burning coal, they put some incense on it, and, they, and, the, and the priests would swing it, and you get this waft of this powerful uh, aroma of incense. 
in the church. I mean, I remember that distinctively, both in Catholic churches and in Orthodox churches, with the, the incense that the that the priests would offer there. So thinking, what did these guys do that got God so upset in offering uh, this, this uh, fire? So I'm thinking, well, maybe in Exodus 30, it gives a very specific formula of the, so God says you will burn this particular type of incense with this formula, and you're not going to use this for anything else other than offering it up to me. So I'm thinking maybe they, maybe they decided to go rogue and, and introduce another type of incense there that God didn't ask for. It doesn't say. Maybe they're offering it at the wrong time, in the wrong place, the wrong way. I don't know. Or with the wrong heart. I don't, it's not clear to me what they're doing exactly that makes this unauthor, unauthorized fire. And then the other thing that I'm left wondering about is, notice the instructions that God gives through Moses to Aaron and, and the two remaining sons after these two are killed. Think about this. He says, Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine and strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you. So I'm thinking, well, maybe these guys were drunk. That's, that's what I'm thinking. Maybe they were drunk and offering. They, they had too much to drink, and they're, they're drunk, and they're offering this, and they're being slipshod in what they're doing. And God strikes them dead, and he says, and by the way, Aaron and, and, and sons, remaining sons, don't ever drink before you come up to offer sacrifices to me. So I'm left wondering. Maybe it doesn't say that, but that's, that's what I'm thinking. And then I'm thinking also, what, are the, what was it that God was particularly concerned about in the instructions that he gave? And what it says... Uh, don't drink uh, strong wine or drink when you approach the altar lest you die. Verse 10, he says that you may distinguish between holy and unholy, between unclean and clean, and you may teach the children of Israel all the ordinance which the Lord spoke to them by the hand of Moses. He's saying you, you, you have an important job to do but distinguish between the holy and unholy, the clean and the un unclean, and also to teach exactly what the law of Moses was, teach the, the commands of God faithfully and accurately to all the people. That's what you're responsible for. And so you can't possibly uh, drink while you're, while you're involved in that, in that kind of service. Uh, and then the bodies of the two fallen priests are carried out by relatives. So he calls in, you know, cousins, second cousins to... to, to, to to drag out the dead bodies. And he tells, and Aaron's very disturbed, obviously his two sons have just gotten killed and, and the brothers along with them, and he tells them, don't uncover your heads, don't take off your garments, they've got their priestly garments on, and they said, don't leave the tabernacle. So just imagine they're standing there, the relatives are brought in to drag the bodies out to outside the camp, to a place where they can be buried. And he's telling Aaron and his sons, you can't, you just, just keep doing what you're doing. You have been anointed. You're not, you can't take a break. You can't mourn like everybody else mourns for these people. That you have to, you have to continue doing what you're doing. He says, and don't leave the tabernacle lest you die. So, man, imagine they want to, they want to, normal thing is you'd want to, this is your brother, this is your, your two older brothers, this is your son. You want to take the body out. You want to say your last goodbyes. And he says, no, you can't do that. You have been anointed by God. If you do that, you're going to be struck dead as well. Okay. Uh, so what are we supposed to learn from all this about God and about ourselves? What about this might possibly apply to us? And so I want to take a look at, at, at a, few, a few things here that I thought of. The, the first thing is the anointed ones, the priests, those who draw near to God, need to be especially vigilant and careful. It says here, 
In verse 3, Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I shall be sanctified, and before all the congregation, I will be glorified. So these are priests. These are people who are drawing near to God. So God's attitude is, I will be glorified by those who draw near to me. Something that David Adams mentioned uh, a little while ago in a communion message is in the in the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus says the first thing in the Lord's Prayer is in Matthew six is Jesus says, um, "Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name." So when when God says when it says hallowed be your name, uh, most people think well that's just talking about I'm going to praise God. I said, well, God's name, and, and it's one of the early Christian writers says, you know, God's name is holy. You don't have to, you're not going to make it holier by saying things about the name of God. He says, the thing that you need to do if you want to lift up the holiness of God is live lives that glorify God. It's in the lives of the people who draw close to God that God is either uh, glorified or his name is blasphemed among the nations based on how people are living. So it's those who draw closest to God, although they are the most protected by God, God also expects the most of them. And so it's like like in James it says, those who teach will face a more severe judgment. We need lots of good Bible teachers, but the expectation is higher. If the people are hypocrites or if the people are bad shepherds, that they're going to pay a much more severe price because people are around are going to associate. So oh, those people are close to God. Well, they're liars, they're selfish, they're greedy, they're immoral. So obviously their God is completely worthless. So that's the first thing is that God holds those who are associating closely with him to a much higher standard than he associates other people. The second thing is the idea of bringing strange fire before the Lord. Now, what is that referring to? Or what, what, what is that? If everything in the past was written to teach us something, if all these things are shadows of things to come. So when, when it says, don't offer strange fire before me, well, what does that mean? What does that apply to? And I'll, I'll give you a, a quote from one early Christian writer, Irenaeus. And he's writing around the year 180 A.D. And Irenaeus is interesting to me because it, as a child, as, as a young disciple, he learned at the feet of Polycarp, who was a personal disciple of the Apostle John. So he's only one human link removed from one of the apostles. So I'm very interested in what he has to say. And it's not that he's writing under inspiration, but he's, he's pretty close to the, to the source himself. And he's talking about heresies in the church in the second century while he was alive. And he says, And the heretics indeed who bring strange fire to the altar of God, namely strange doctrines, strange teachings, shall be burned up by the fire of heaven as were Nadab and Abihu. But such as rise up in opposition to the truth and exhort others against the church of God shall remain among those in hell fire, being swallowed up by an earthquake, even as were Korah, Datham, and Abiram. That's from number 16. So this is, the picture is, he's saying that God is issuing a warning in the Old Testament that those who bring strange fire to him, that those who are bringing, those who are in the church who are bringing strange, corrupted teachings into the church, that this is they're going to have to look forward to the penalty of fire as well. It's a stern warning. Uh, Leviticus 10.10, 10, it says that you may distinguish between holy and unholy, between clean and unclean. You may teach the children of Israel all the ordinances which the Lord spoke to them by the hand of Moses. So that's what God is looking for from the priests in the Old Testament, and that's what he's looking for among the people today, is that those who are teaching are going to be presenting faithfully and accurately what the Lord has handed down. Uh, 
No one, no group of people has the authority to play fast and loose with the commands of God, of, of, subtract, of, of holding back certain ones or adding certain ones or twisting whatever the word of the Lord says. The job of the priest is to be faithful to offer the service and, and to, to faithfully hand down the teachings that God gave them. I'm, I'm sobered. I'm often sobered by what Paul said. This is the Apostle Paul who's speaking. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, he says, But even if we, he's referring to one of the apostles, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than that which we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, and so now I say it again, if anyone preaches any other gospel you, then what you have received, let him be accursed. So this is... Uh, Strong message. The, the Paul's saying, if an apostle, if I did this, if an angel from heaven came down and preached something other than what was handed down originally by the apostles, let him be accursed, let him be cut off, let him be condemned. I mean, this is what happened to Nadab and Abihu: is that they were they were priests of God, but they were they were they were corrupted in what they were doing, and God struck them down as a lesson to all of us. I'm reminded of what, what it says in Jude in verse 3. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you, contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. The, the faith was handed down, handed down to the apostles by Jesus and by the Holy Spirit. It is a sacred trust and our job is to preserve and pre present that, to uncover it, to restore it, to carry it forward. The simple apostolic faith, not to corrupt it with any innovations or, or shortcuts or, 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 or new teachings or doctrines. That includes if, if things that are in, unpopular in, in the teachings of Jesus, we don't avoid them and we don't water them down. Whatever it is, we pass it, we pass it along faithfully to be faithful priests of God. Uh, as I look around, there's a lot of strange fire going on. There's a lot of funny smelling incense in, in, in churches today. You, you follow what I'm saying here? Okay? We can't change any of the teachings of Jesus and the apostles regarding sexual purity, permanence of marriage, church discipline, Preserving the biblical roles of men and women in the church and in the family. Unity among Christians. Resolving conflict quick, quickly. Confessing sins to one another. Right down the line is that our job is to faithfully teach all the commands of God without pulling any punches, without, without changing anything, without adding anything. We're, we're, to, we're to carry that forward. The responsibility is the same as it was to the priests. That, uh, that where Nadab and Abayu failed. Uh, another lesson from this is not all who have been washed, clothed, and anointed and are engaged in service are going to make it to the end. Some will be burned by fire. Okay? This is the truth. So, when we see people fall, when we see leaders, prominent Christians, people we looked up to, taken out or spiritually dead, should we be surprised? No. This is, this is a 50% reduction in the priest. From day one, 50% gone, taken out by God. So the whole idea that if you're a Christian, you've got it made in the shade, and you can look down at everybody else, and, and you know you've got it, you've got it covered. Is 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 nonsense here? I think that the brothers, the younger brothers, are are scared to death. The reason they didn't go out the door accompanying the bodies because they because God said, "You leave the temple, you're dead too." Okay, so they, they took it they took it seriously. This reinforced the fear of the Lord uh, in them as well. And I think also about the reaction of Aaron and his sons who were told, don't, 
don't take your hats off. Don't take your clothes off. Don't leave the temple to go to bury your, your two brothers, your, your son. When they're told, you're anointed, you have a job to do, you need to stay you need to stay on, on task, okay? So while they're, they're brokenhearted, they're devastated. And I think that reminds me of what things that Jesus said. I'm sure it reminds you of similar things too. In, in Matthew 10, starting in verse 34, Jesus said, Don't think I've come to bring peace on the earth. I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. I mean, this, to me, watching what happened to the family of, of, of Aaron, which was split three against two, two against three, uh, and, and the three remaining were told, don't go after the other two who, who died. We lost it. Um, Luke nine fifty seven. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road, someone said to him, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Another also said, Lord, I'll follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell at my house. Jesus said to him, No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, this is not, it's not an excuse for us to be neglecting our family members. Okay? Paul says that anyone who who does not meet the needs of his relatives, has denied the faith and is worse than unbelievers. not talking about that, but the principle is that we have to love God more than anything else and more than our families. And that was something that, that Aaron and his two younger sons were put to the test. So when we see others falling, it should not shock us. This has always been the case. Think of the story of the Exodus journey. The whole point that Paul is making in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, look, all of them were washed. They were all baptized in Moses in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. These people are drinking from Christ, but most of them didn't make it because they fell as a result of sin in the desert. Joshua and Caleb made it of that generation. That was it. So this is a lesson for us. We've got to be sober. Fear God because not all the Christians, not everyone who's baptized and is eating the spiritual food and drink and walking and, and performing the service, not everybody's going to make it. Okay, this is just one more example of that lesson. Another lesson to me in this story is the dangers of drunkenness. Now, in a group this size, maybe there's somebody who has a secret struggle with alcohol, with drinking. There's a good, good, good chance of that. Uh, it's something that's worth stopping and reflecting on. This is not something we talk about a whole lot. Aaron and his sons are warned not to drink while they're ministering at the tabernacle. Anything we can learn from this. Does this prohibit Christians from drinking alcohol? No, they're priests. Did he say don't drink alcohol at all? No, he didn't say that. He said when you're ministering here, you don't do that. Uh, I was raised in a, uh, I'd say the, the dominant cultural uh, influence in my life was Irish Catholic. The Irish Catholics are not known for abstinence from alcohol. Okay, let's put it mildly. Okay, growing up in New Jersey, Irish Catholic, we have some Irish Catholics here who are smiling. You know exactly what I'm talking about. People who know, know Irish Catholics. So when I was growing up, alcohol was everywhere. It was at every celebration. It was at every party. It was with dinner. It was. It was just. And we didn't have a breakfast and lunch, but it was just. It was just part of the social fabric. When I ran into friends who were, some friends of mine who were, who were from Protestant backgrounds who came particularly from the South, and they were explaining that they didn't drink alcohol. Their parents didn't drink it at all. I just thought that was the strangest possible thing. I thought, well, wait, 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 you're Christians, you don't drink alcohol. I mean, the first miracle of Jesus, knowing this growing up Roman Catholic, was, was turning water into wine at Cana. 
and and the Last Supper and and the wine there. It said, how can you possibly believe that Christians don't drink alcohol? So that was that was that was about my first exposure to people who were really down on alcohol. Then later on, I saw what happened to so many of my friends who drank too much. For some reason, I just never, I had other vices. That wasn't one of them, alcohol. I just wasn't drawn to it. Uh, But I saw so many of my peers, the guys that I went to high school with, who drank heavily whenever they drank when they were happy, they drank when they were sad, they drank when they're trying to avoid pain. And basically, any emotion that came up was an excuse to drink. And so what happened over time was it, it just basically rotted out their, their character and destroyed their lives. And then I look back on my extended family, and I'm realizing, years later, I realized, you know, from the help of one of my siblings was pointing it out to me, things I was blind to. They said, you know, there were problems with alcoholism in our family. There were problems with people who were really messed up by alcohol and who couldn't let go of it in our family, and you just didn't see it because it was it was so much of the, so much of the, of the culture in the background that we're part of. And so I'm I'm painfully aware of much more than when I was was younger of the danger of alcohol, and I've seen it destroy individual lives. I've seen it destroy families. I mean, it's the same thing with with. Uh, uh, abuse of other addictive type drugs uh, other than alcohol and uh, the Bible talks about the dangers of drunkenness in the New Testament Ephesians 5.18 says don't be drunk with wine which is dissipation but be filled with the spirit 1 Corinthians 5 this is, this is Paul's talking about to the Corinthian church, how they need to deal with sin in the church and how serious a sin drunkenness is. 1 Corinthians 5.11, it says, Now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or idolater or viler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even eat with such a person. What do I have to do with judging those who are outside? Do uh, uh, do you not judge those who are inside, but those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourself the evil person. So if somebody's involved in, in drunkenness in the church, the loving thing to do is put them out of the church because they're going to lose their salvation if they don't repent, and they're going to corrupt the, the rest of the church. And this, you know, growing up Catholic, they certainly, everybody got a pass for drinking too much. It was like a big joke. It was, it was uh, but... Uh, uh, but this is a serious, a serious, a serious problem. We need to watch out for one another, and be honest. If you have a tendency to have a problem with alcohol, you drink too much, or, or you ever get drunk, then then get open with somebody who can help you with this, and and repent and, and get it under control. Some people, there's, there's a lot of people who just can't drink alcohol at all because it's too it's too addicting. It's too, ensla- actually, a better word is enslaving. It's too enslaving. And they just can't drink at all. I'll, I will, I, I hardly ever drank when I was younger, and I will have, I'm very strict. I, I'll have maybe one glass of, of wine with dinner, and uh, there's, there's a voice in the back of my head that always tells me, no more. That's it. Just one, I'm very, very strict about that. Very, very stringent about that. And if I ever felt like it was slipping away, I'd tell Allison, "Let's, let's, let's, uh, let's not do that." But I'm, I'm very, very strict about, you know, uh, a, a extremely limited use of alcohol because I'm aware. I've seen the dangers that it does. Now it doesn't mean I, I've also run into people. Remember having uh, someone over for for dinner once, who was from another religious background. He says in our church. If if you, anybody drinks any alcohol, you get thrown out of the church. Is that that's a, that's a rule in the church that you can't drink at all? And I'm thinking, well, how do you do that? You would you know probably would have thrown some apostles out of the church. If so, I don't understand how you can do that. I think I I appreciate that they're looking out for the dangers of alcohol, but we can't go beyond what's written in the scriptures. I mean, Paul, you know, there's plenty of examples of. of Wine being used in the New Testament, you've got to be real creative to try to explain those things away. So, uh, you know, drinking alcohol in moderation is not a sin. In the, in the scriptures, is very clear. In Paul in Romans fourteen says, "Hey, this is a this is this is a matter of opinion. Not supposed to be judging each other on the basis of this uh, either." Uh, 
you know, he said, it's neither good to eat meat nor drink wine or doing anything else by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. So the idea is you don't want, if somebody's an alcoholic, you don't want to drink around them. You don't want to cause somebody else to stumble. There's nothing wrong with eating meat. There's nothing wrong with having a glass of wine if it doesn't cause you or someone else to stumble. So we need to to uh, look out for that. Of course, First Timothy 5, uh, Paul tells Timothy, don't just drink water, have a little bit of wine because of your stomach illnesses that you have, your st- frequent infirmities. So I, I would encourage everyone, take an inventory of alcohol in your life. This is a good opportunity to do that, to... to uh, to, to see if, if, if there's an issue with that. I'll throw one uh, closing thought in, in here, too, is uh, an early Christian writer, Tertullian, he's writing work on fasting. He said, you know, fasting, you think of normally as you don't eat anything. He said, well, actually, there are, the church in the, in the beginning would also have partial fasts and where you wouldn't eat certain things. I mean, you might have bread and water or you, know, you, just, you just cut out a lot of things. So there would be a, a total fast where you eat nothing or you just have water or there would be partial fasts that people would, would participate in. And he points to some examples of this in the Old Testament, which I thought, which I found interesting. He looked at the example of Daniel. In the beginning of Daniel, that Daniel doesn't have any of the fancy food and doesn't have any of the wine there before uh, when he goes into the, uh, the Babylonian kingdom. And then uh, later on under Cyrus, where he has a vision, and he says, In those days I was mourning during th- uh, three weeks, pleasant bread I did not eat, flesh and wine did not enter into my mouth. So he, he, would, he so for a while he, he put away all fancy food. It's kind of a partial fast that he was undergoing at the time. Uh, and uh, he talks about the example of Elijah. I'll, I'll put this in the notes. Samuel, his mother said this he's never going to have intoxicating wine. Uh, when he's growing up, there was the, the Nazarite vow. I think the Nazarites didn't drink wine either. And uh, so so there, there are some, several examples of that. And Tertullian is talking about how in the early church that people would go on total fast, but they'd also fast from wine. Some people would say, I'm never going to drink wine. And Tertullian thought that Timothy was one of those people. He just said, I'm, I'm just not going to drink wine at all. That was, a, that was a type of fast, a type of self-denial of the flesh that he was doing. And Paul said, no, you should have a little bit for your stomach sake. So uh, uh, just throw that in while we're on the subject because Tertullian mentioned that in connection with this passage. Now, some people may be wondering, you know, this is the Old Testament. God is harsh. He would smite people. But isn't it great that in the New Testament, the God through Jesus is so much kinder? We have the grace of God. We have the mercy of God. He used, to, he used to incinerate people back on the Old Covenant. But isn't God much kinder now? Well, does God, after Jesus died on the cross, did God smite anybody, knock them dead for sin immediately, uh, like Nadab and Abihu? Well, actually, he did. Okay, The first one, I think most people probably think of this, is in Acts chapter 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They lied to Peter. They kept back the money. So they're, they're, they're greedy and they're lying. The big thing is that they're lying. And they were both struck dead, like, right away. So here's somebody who's struck dead. And what happens, the fear of the Lord grips the whole church when they see this happening. It's a good result. Another example I thought of is in Revelation 2, in the example of Jezebel. Jezebel calls herself a prophetess. And she is eating uh, food sacrifice idols and leading other people in sexual immorality. And Jesus himself says, I gave her time to repent. People ask the question, well, if somebody falls into sin, is that it for them? He says, Jesus said, Jesus said, I gave her time to repent of her immorality, and she didn't. Okay, he gave her a chance. She didn't do it. And he says, I'm going to strike her dead. And all those who are involved in the same sins with her, I'm going to strike them dead. So, does God still strike people dead as a result of sins? Sometimes he does. He did that after the cross. So the whole idea that God became nicer later on, well, God God still, the fear of God is still there and the punishment of God is still there as well. Um, Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to close this with, in Hebrews 10 about this whole idea of this God, is this the same God that struck Ananias and Sapphira dead 
Is this the same God who raised Jesus from the dead and that we are praying to? And if, if so, what then? What are we to make of that? Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10. So think about this. Hebrews, Hebrews 8, 9, 10 is all talking about the story of the tabernacle. Jesus is the high priest, so basically we are the priests. So with that in mind, as, as fellow members of the royal priesthood, let's think about what he's saying right here. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with heart in full assurance of faith. Remember that expression, drawing near? As God says, he's talking about Nadab and Abihu. He says, those who draw near to me, I will be held holy by them. So it says, we are those who are drawing near to God. With our hearts in full assurance of faith, having a heart sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So they were, it says, we were washed just like the priests were washed. We were, we were sprinkled just like the priests were sprinkled. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so, uh, and so much more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin so willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of one or two witnesses. How much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy, who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, says the Lord, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So this is, you know, think about what what, Ananias, uh, what uh, Nadab and Abihu did. Is they're offering strange fire before the Lord. They're offering it's, uh, some, some common, unholy sacrifice before the Lord. And he says, if those people in the Old Testament were destroyed by God, what kind of fate do we deserve if we have trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which we were sanctified an uncommon thing? So instead of offering offering uh, common incense, it says you're 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 basically defacing the blood of Jesus as priests. That's what you're doing. You've been washed. But if you go and you do this, you're worse than those guys were in the Old Covenant. And he says, what kind of a fate are you going to face? It's You deserve a worse fate than they do because you're guilty of a worse crime. In Hebrews chapter 13, we have to close with this. Hebrews 13, verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. I'm sorry, Hebrews 12, verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he is promised, saying, Yet once more I shall shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, and the things which cannot be shaken may be remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. So... And this is the lesson, is that God was a consuming fire to Nadab and Abihu, but our God is just as much of a consuming fire as theirs is. And if we are treating the blood of Christ that sanctified us as an unholy thing, we deserve a worse fate than the people who were offering 
who were offering strange fire before the Lord. So this is a stiff, stiff warning to us. God's still a consuming fire. That hasn't changed. God didn't become any nicer. He was merciful and just back then, and, and, and he's the same way now. So uh, many lessons for us to learn here. We'll pick it up in chapter 11 next time. Amen.